few years ago, a young man called me on the phone and he asked me if I would buy him breakfast at a bagel shop in western suburbs of Chicago. And I said, he's a sharp young guy, and, and I thought it would be nice to spend a little time with him. And he was a devoted Christian guy who had uh, devoted his life to serve the Lord, and so I knew it would be a lot of fun to have breakfast with him. So I did. So we go to this bagel shop, a little Einstein bagel shop on the corner, and we got the the coffee that you can only get there and our bagel, and we talked for a while, and he told me about his life and what he was doing and what his plans were, but then he kind of got a sad look on his face, and uh, he told me about a big bird on his heart. He said it was his mom. I said, what's wrong with your mom? He said, well, I mean, you probably know her. I mean, I've never met a more devoted Christian than my mom. She's like done everything right, never missed a Sunday in church. Why, she taught all of us kids at home. She really sacrificed for us. But right now she's having a real serious problem, a real serious crisis of faith in her life. I'm like, you're kidding, why? And he said, it's kind of my sister... And my, my older sister, she did everything mom asked her to do and dad asked her to do. And, and she went to all the programs at church and she did all the, all the kinds of things that you would expect of a good Christian girl. And then as soon as she turned 18, she walked away from the Lord. She walked away from the church. She walked away from her family. And now mom is devastated. Sadly, that's not really that uncommon. That kind of disillusionment is just, it's a form of doubt, and doubt is a common thing in life. Most of us have doubts. Few of us talk about our doubts. It's actually kind of more popular to talk about other problems you might have than than talking about doubts, but today I want to talk a little bit about doubts. Imagine that woman. She's a young woman with a family. She she sits in church. She's very faithful. She has a worn Bible. But in her mind, in her, in her secret thoughts, even, even during church, she's, she's kind of sending signals back and forth to God, like, God, why has my life turned out the way it's turned out? This isn't the way it was supposed to look. I'm not supposed to be sitting here alone without my husband when other women have their husbands here. Or, or another woman, and, and she and she's in church, and she sits alone, and she looks across, and there's another woman, and her pew is full of children, but this woman's hasn't had children, and it and it just kind of eats away at her insides. This doubt, it's like it's almost like the cancer of the soul. This doubt. Now we know that Christianity is based on believing something. Christianity isn't basically an ethic, even though it's a wonderfully ethical way to live. Christianity isn't basically kind of a system or a series of rules or or even a way that people live. Christianity is, is really not a philosophy of life, even though it makes all kinds of sense and it includes a philosophy of life. It's so much more than a philosophy of life. Christianity, when you boil it right down like to its basic elements, or when you get down to the foundation of what, it, what does it mean to be a Christian, it's just this. There is a God who created the entire world. This God who created the entire world, the people in the world rebelled against Him. And they sinned, and they walked away from Him. And He set in motion a plan to buy them back, to get back the people that rebelled and walked away from Him. And he sent prophets and he sent teachers, but he ultimately sent 
Him, he sent Himself, His own Son, Jesus, who lived a life of absolute moral perfection and never sinned. And then He was nailed to a cross. He was crucified on a Roman cross. And He was buried in the grave and was there for three days and three nights. And then He rose again. His disciples, His apostles and disciples and followers would go all around the world then telling this simple story that there's a God and that, that the, the people that this God created rebelled against Him and that He sent His own Son to, to shed His blood on the cross for their sins. And that for them to have eternal life, all they would have to do is put their faith and trust in the perfect character, the perfect nature of, their, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died for them. Not in their own religion, not in their own catechism, not in their own communion, not in their own baptism, not in their own good works, not in the money that they gave to the church, but people pass from death unto life by believing facts about who Jesus Christ is, that He's God, that He was perfect, that He died for sinners, that He was buried, and that He rose again. So Christianity is based on this hard cold, objective fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus Christ came back from the dead, and He did, it proves the whole thing is true. If Jesus Christ is dead, it proves the whole thing is not true. If Jesus Christ is alive, and He is, then that demands the loyalty and the belief of every living, breathing human being on earth. It's just that simple. Do you see that? And so all of Christianity, rightly understood, is based on believing facts about who Jesus Christ is. So if we don't believe the facts about who Jesus Christ is, faith will not just disillusion, or doubt will not just disillusion us, doubt will actually destroy us, doubt will actually damn us to hell. And so if you're a Christian, you can't escape the problem of doubt. Even Christians doubt. We often don't say it, but we do. I mean, every time you sin, isn't it a little bit of doubt when you sin? Isn't it a little bit of doubt behind anything that you do that's really wrong? Christians are often diminished by doubt. We all are. And unbelievers are actually, one day, people who don't believe in Christ haven't put their faith and trust in Christ alone. We call it justification by faith alone. The Bible is very clear about that. Read the book of Romans. So be, uh, believers are people who are justified by faith. They're made right with God by believing who Jesus is and what He did for them. Okay? When I say unbelievers, I'm talking about a group of people who, though, though they may be inspired people or nice people or even religious people, they haven't put their full weight, trust, and confidence in Jesus Christ's righteousness alone for their salvation. These are unbelievers in the category I'm talking about. Even though they may be religious, they may be believing the tigers, they may believe in their church, they may believe in peanut butter, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Whether or not you're a Christian and you end up in heaven when you die, or hell when you die, depends on if you believe who Jesus is and put your confidence and faith and trust in Him alone. That's it. Now, So you see how important faith is and how devastating doubt can be. If you're an unbeliever, your doubt can take you to hell. If you're a believer, your doubt can pretty much wring out your life and make you a very unhappy, ineffective Christian. So wouldn't it be good to deal with doubt? Now to deal with the problem, you kind of want to understand the problem a little bit today. And I want to talk just a little bit about the different kinds of doubt that there might, there might be. And I have some slides for this so we work our way through this. I think there are only 74 of them. Growing pains of faith. Sometimes doubt is just like growing pains of faith. 
That's not such a bad thing, really. I had this when I was young in particular. I still have it some, but I mean, when I was young in particular, I'm in high school, and I remember sitting in a study hall and thinking, okay, I'm a Baptist preacher's kid, so I believe what Baptist preachers say. But I had this little kind of nagging down in the back of my mind. What if my dad was a Buddhist? What if my mother was a Muslim? What would I believe was true then? Like, shouldn't I kind of think this through myself and decide, you know, is the Christian faith really credible? Is this really something I should pour my life into because it's true, not just because it's kind of a cultural thing that we do? You know, there are cultural Christians, right? You know what I'm talking about? They're kind of Christianized, and they sort of live in a culture that's sort of Christian, and so they recognize Christian things, and if you were to press them, they would say, well, I'm a Christian in a broad sense. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a cultural Christian. I'm talking about a, an objective fact. Either you believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation to forgive you of your sin, or you don't. So if you believe you're a Christian in the Bible sense, and if you don't yet believe you're not yet a Christian in the Bible sense, we're not talking about the cultural Christian thing. We're talking about the reality of whether you go to heaven, whether you go to hell. And so there are, we go through these growing pains of faith. And in other words, another way to say it, some doubt is like the back door to faith. It's not bad. You have doubts, and so you kind of investigate them. And I will just tell you this, whether you know it or not, many of you know this, some of you don't, the Christian faith can stand up to the most rigorous intellectual scrutiny. You can study creation. You can study science. You can study history. You can study architecture. You can study agriculture. You can, you can study uh, archaeology. Study any science. Lay that down. Christianity doesn't run away or cower in fear over any thinking person or any system of thought. There are Christian thinkers in every imaginable corner of this globe. And so we don't have to, you know, kind of hide our heads in shame and say, well, we had this little sort of um, feeling and that's all that there is to it. That's not true about Christianity. Christianity has a great deal of gray matter behind it. John R. Stott, an English uh, pastor who passed away not too long ago, wrote a little book I read in college called Your Mind Matters. My God made you with a heart and you can use your heart to understand who God is. And God made you with a will and you can use your will to understand who God is. God made you with a mind, and you can understand God in some regard with your mind, but you will not fully apprehend God until you apprehend God with your spirit. But it doesn't bypass your mind and your will and your emotions. It includes all that, you see. So I'm in high school, and I'm thinking this. That's why I get books on what they call apologetics. In other words, books that describe why the Christian faith is true. And I read C.S. Lewis, and I read Josh McDowell, and I read Francis Schaeffer. And over and over again, as I kind of, kind of stock up my mind and my heart with truth about the Bible, God uses that to help me a bit. But it's not until later, and I'll give you the secret later, of really, I believe, the, the most powerful secret of overcoming doubts, but that, like it comes later in my talk. But, but this doubt that I had as a young man, and that you, you always still wrestle with some, it can be like a part of faith because it's like, here are the questions that come to your mind. And as you answer those questions, the doubt becomes like the backdoor to faith. And so it's the growing pains of faith. Some people have doubt just because they don't know the truth yet. And when I say ignorance, I'm not meaning it in a mean way. Like my own dad, who was a very devout um, church-going guy, but he didn't get the facts about the gospel kind of lined out. 
He liked kind of catechism. They taught him a catechism, and so he kind of knew the answers. He could like recite the answers, and he lit candles, and he sang in the choir, and he was a religious guy, but he didn't know what to do about the fact that he was guilty, and he had sin until some sailor buddies, if you can imagine, in Chicago began to talk to him about the facts about who Jesus is, and my dad's life did a 180. I mean, his life completely changed because he was ignorant of the gospel. He had all the pieces but he hadn't kind of connected the dots. And a lot of people are that way. They're religious people. They're not ignorant. I mean, they've done some reading and they know about religion, but they haven't connected the dots so that their spirit kind of lit up with spiritual life. And so sometimes doubt comes because you just don't have enough information yet and you need to know more about the Lord. Sometimes it's doubt can come when you're just hungry, like you probably are right now, or weary, or tired. And if you're tired, please don't tell me right now. You know, Look excited, if you will. But a lot of times in the Bible, for instance, you have examples of this. Here's a man who was a bold guy for God, Elijah, and he was like like calling out the false prophets and all of that. But then when he got tired and he got hungry, he got doubtful. So sometimes you just, like your mother said, just get yourself a good nap. Or like your mother told you, just give the boy something to eat. It's the blood sugar thing. He'll be okay. You know? And that's really very true. Sometimes doubt just comes from physiological reasons. Maybe you've just been sick. Sometimes it's just a slow erosion. You make little, slow, stupid choices. Do you mind me saying it like that? You just make little, gradual, dumb choices. You know, you pick things that are temporary instead of eternal. You, you know what I mean? You really don't invest in eternal things. You really don't put any stock in your soul. You really don't kind of stockpile your heart and your mind and your soul with things that will help you when the days get really hard. And you make these little, kind of foolish investments with your life. And what happens is there's just this slow almost imperceptible erosion of your life, and then all of a sudden one day there's this great cave-in, and you wonder why. And often that's what faith is, what the, what, that's what doubt is for people. Doubt is just like a bunch of really dumb kind of temporary choices that they make, and all of a sudden they find themselves where they never thought they would be, and they're in a great crisis of doubt, lacking in faith, cancer of doubt is eating away their soul, they're in trouble. So sometimes it looks like that. Other times, and this is a bad kind, it's just, I've decided the way I want to live my life, God doesn't agree with me, so I don't believe in Him. There are a lot of people like that. I don't know who you are, you know. That wouldn't be something that you could tell by looking at, you can even tell a lot of times by talking with somebody for a long time if this willful doubt. But there are people, for instance, that are just kind of devoted to, that kind of enjoy their fill-in-the-blank. They enjoy their wealth, or they enjoy their toys, or they enjoy their prestige, or they enjoy their sexual immorality, or they enjoy their drinking, their drunkenness, or they enjoy their drug use and partying, or whatever it is that they have kind of put in a place in their life, and they kind of have a vague idea in their back of their minds, I think God is against this kind of behavior. And so they look at that and they go, do I want God, or do I want life like I want it? And they go, life like I want it, I don't believe in God. It's willful. It's kind of scary. It's kind of chilling. There are people like this. I don't know if this is true about you, but I know there are people like this who just say, if God is going to tell me I can't sleep with who I want to sleep with, I'm not going to believe in a God like that. I'm going to believe in a God that lets me sleep with who I want to sleep with, smoke what I want to smoke, drink what I want to drink, do what I want to do. If I want to live for things and pleasure and accomplishments, I'm going to have myself a God that tells me I'm okay, and I don't want to lay down in bed at night and have that God kind of whispering in my ear and making me feel guilty. And so there are people whose doubt really comes out of the roots of a kind of a willful stubbornness. 
I think there are others. You know, some, I, I call this, I don't know a good way of saying this. I put it like this. Soul adjustments to account for defeat and bondage to sin. Now, this isn't maybe so much willful sin. It's like you started fooling around with something, and then all of a sudden you couldn't stop fooling around with it. And that's the nature of sin. I mean, nobody's going to admit this because we're all dressed up and it's Easter Sunday and everything, but we all know this is true. You say, I'm going to sin whenever I feel like it, and then I'll set it aside, and I'll come back to it later, and all of a sudden you're like, you can't get rid of it. And you're in bondage to it. You're in slavery to it. You say you want to stop something. You can't stop it because sin is like that. It gets its hooks in you bad. And so I've noticed that sometimes when sin gets its hooks into people, then they, don't, they can't get free of it, and they don't know. There is a way to get free, but they don't know the way to get free. And so what they do is they just kind of do the soul adjustment, and they go, well, I don't believe the Bible's true, and I don't believe that God is God, because I don't think I can get free of this sinful behavior that's just kind of got its hooks in me. Does that make sense? So you see what I mean? Doubt can take a lot of different forms. There are a lot of varieties of doubt. There's another one, and this is really a painful one. It's a difficult one. It's doubt that's rooted in pain. Uh, Somebody called it existential angst. The way you look at life from the inside changes drastically when you go through some terrible tragedy or disappointment, some deep disappointment. Sometimes people that have been subjected to sexual abuse or or other kinds of physical abuse or great disappointments in life or they, they lose a loved one that they desperately love or they have a great kind of aching disappointment, something they really set their hopes on. And when that doesn't happen, they go, God, how could you let this happen to me? I can't believe in you anymore. And this is a very sad thing to see, and it does happen to people. There's a mild form of this, and that kind of goes back to my first story I told about the boy whose mother was disillusioned. I know that if I talk to that lady, and I said to her, do you believe that Jesus is God? That lady would say, yes, I do. She would kind of put her head down, yes, I believe that Jesus is God. Do you think that Jesus is alive? Yes, she would say, I believe that Jesus is alive. Maybe I would press further and I would say, do you believe that God is good? And she would say, yes. In her theology, she would check that box, yes, God is good. I would say to her, do you, do, do you believe that God is powerful? He's, oh, he controls everything and he works out everything together for good. She would say, yes. And then I would say, does that include your daughter and what's going on with her right now? And she would say, I don't know. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? You've got to like nod or the message gets extremely long and painful. Yes. No, yeah, what happens is this is kind of a disillusionment. This is a, not a full-blown kind of a hatred against God. It's just kind of an aching, kind of a nagging, kind of a rust on your soul. It's just kind of eating away at your soul. And you're going, I know there's a God and I know His Son Jesus, I know He's alive, but I, but I have my doubts and I can't express them, but they kind of eat. And then you kind of like, maybe you opt for sort of a half-throttle Christian life. You kind of, you put on the tie, you get the Bible, you go to church, but you, you kind of got your faith gutted, if you will. How do you deal with all of this stuff? Well, there'd be a lot of different answers to how to deal with all of this stuff. But I want you to see a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now, there, are, depending on how you count them, there are at least 10 or 11 recorded in the Bible post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Now, these are some of the coolest stories in the entire Bible. I mean, think about this. A man appears alive after he died, and he said he's going to appear alive after he died. And you see him die. You see him die a horrible crucifixion death. He didn't, like, swoon or pass out. He wasn't, like, 
he was really dead, tortured dead, three days in the grave dead, and he says he's going to come back to life, and then he appears, and the, the, we don't know how many times he appeared, we know the Bible records about 10 or 11 different post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times when we read the Bible, you ever notice you're kind of used to it, and it's kind of like, yeah, whatever. You kind of read the Bible, but it never really hits you what you're reading, and it doesn't really dawn on you what's being said. I'm talking here about a man who was dead appearing alive again. These would be very interesting stories, and they are. Everything about Jesus is fascinating and interesting. You never know what he's going to say. He's the kind of person that is incredibly profound, and often in this kind of little light touch of a story he would tell. He would know what you're thinking, and sometimes he would answer your thoughts and not your words. That would freak you out, wouldn't it? You're thinking something, he would walk up to you and he would say, like without saying, I know what you're thinking, he would just answer the thoughts you had in your mind. I wish I could do that right now, that'd be kind of fun. You'd be out there going, I don't know about that. It's like, I'm sorry, it's the only tie I had, you know. I know what you're thinking. You're like, how did he know? But Jesus would do this. Now, in this post-resurrection appearance, Jesus uh, has appeared a week before, on the, the day of his resurrection, he's appeared to a number of his disciples. A couple of them are missing. Judas has hanged himself. And Thomas, for some reason, is AWOL. He's not there. We don't really know why Thomas wasn't there. He probably didn't obey his mother and go to night church. I don't know what it was, but he wasn't there. And so Thomas is not there. Jesus appears, and you find this in John chapter 20. And by the way, I would just suggest to you, you know, we're not going to teach them all this morning, but if you want some really awesome reading in the Bible, just read these post-resurrection stories about Jesus. Jesus fixes breakfast for Peter, a fish by the, by the sea. There's just these beautiful stories. And, and, and there's always something unique in each one of them that Jesus is teaching that still kind of like echoes down through the years into our very, the very depths of our soul. And that's really true with this one. I mean, you will find yourself here in this story, and I find myself in this story. If you've ever wrestled with any kind of doubt, you will find yourself in this story. And you will see how Jesus treats people who are doubters. It's very beautiful. You want to read it? Here we go. We're in uh, chapter 20 of John. And uh, here's, here sets it up in verse 19, and uh, the key, the, what we're going over here is verses 24 through 31. But verse 19 sets it up. Then the same day at evening, beginning the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace with you. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. This was, of course, obviously to identify who he was, they had seen him abused, they had seen the, the nails go into his hands, and they'd seen the spear go into his side. Jesus' was, wounds were unique wounds, unlike others who were crucified. He had a spear in his side. And so this would have been evidence that he really was who he said he was. This isn't some hallucination or phantom. This is really Jesus who really died, was really buried, and really rose again. And he knows this, so he says to them, look at my scars. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I want to show you three things in the text that we're going to read. We're We're going to see Thomas makes a statement of doubt. Have you heard of a statement of faith? 
A statement of faith is when a person writes down the things that they affirm and believe and would die for. But Thomas, the apostle, the follower of Jesus, the guy that saw Jesus do miracles and wonders and raise the dead and heal people and cast out demons, makes a statement that's pretty shocking. It's his statement of doubt. And I want you to hear it. Verse 24, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It would be easy for us to be smug, and go, I can't believe he did that. But imagine this. You have to understand that Thomas was a follower of Jesus, and Jesus made all kinds of claims that looked like they weren't true when they crucified him and killed him and buried him. And so Thomas would have taken a step back and thought, what is going on? His doubt would probably have been the doubt of disillusionment. He had put all his hopes in Jesus to be the Messiah, and now the guy was tortured in a horrible way, crucified naked on a cross, humiliated by the Romans, scorned by the Jewish establishment, naked, tortured, crucified on a thoroughfare where people would walk by and spit on him and mock him and he didn't do anything about it. And Thomas might have been kind of recoiled into himself and says, well, I don't know what to believe now. And so they said, hey, we saw him and he's alive and he's going, I will not believe that until I see it. Well, you know the story, right? You know what happens next? We see that it's going to be Thomas's statement of faith. So after eight days, Thomas has a week to think about this. Like, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Now, there's something that we don't really make a big deal out of here, but Jesus didn't open the door when he came in. That would kind of freak you out, wouldn't it? It's like, did you see the door open? It's like, he's, I don't know if he's, is he, does he smile when he does this? He's like, hi guys. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't say. But he's like, hello? And they're like, oh. It's like, and so what does he do to Thomas? This is one of the coolest parts in the Bible. What does he do to Thomas? He says, hey Thomas, you want to see my side? Thomas is like, how did he know that? What a beautiful thing. Do you get this? Jesus Christ walk, comes into the room, and the first thing he does is he knows that Thomas is struggling with disillusionment and doubt and pain and hurt and disappointment. And the first thing he does is he looks him in the eye, and he says, Say, Thomas, you want to put your finger in the nail prints, and you want to see the scar on my side? Thomas, the hair must have stood up on the back of his neck when Jesus said this. And what does Thomas do at this point? Does he put his hand in? Does he reach in there and feel that? It's like, let me take a look. Yeah, they look authentic, but I don't know. Does he do that? No. This is one of the sweet parts of the Bible where he goes, My Lord and my God. He understands what a lot of people don't understand. Jesus is not just sent from God. Jesus is not just a spokesman for God. Jesus is God. 
Jesus is God. He claims to be God. He's buried. And to vindicate the claims that Jesus made, God rose Jesus from the dead so that you and I could sit here today and sweep the cobwebs of doubt out of our soul and believe and have life because of it. So leave this kind of other question. Well, then how do you overcome doubt? And it's in the next section here. Here it says, Thomas answers and says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Get this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now I want to give you a little practical, direct, this is kind of like the big idea of the message here. A practical, direct, this will help you a lot. If you struggle with doubt, and all of us struggle with doubt. If we're Christians, and we struggle with a doubt of disillusionment or disappointment, or we just like get off the rails and we sin, it's because of doubt, right? And if you're an unbeliever, you're not in the family of faith yet, and you're kind of on your way to hell and judgment, this is going to help you. This is the thing that God gave us. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we had an eyewitness that could talk to us? Like we have a person that would go, let me help you. I was there, man. Look at me in the eyes. I saw them kill him. I saw him alive. I'm an eyewitness. That's what the apostles did. They just spread out all over the earth. Thomas, they say, went to India and died a martyr's death. That's the tradition. These apostles were so convinced. At first they were scared. They're hiding. They're wanting to go home. They're wanting to go home to Mama. They're hiding. Jesus shows up, and when they know Jesus is alive, they go around the world telling everybody. They are absolutely convinced, even though they were common, fearful guys, they're absolutely convinced that Jesus is who he said he was because he came back to life again. And when they preached, they got the singular theme. They all preached the same message. Hey, Jesus, he's alive. I don't think it was their eloquence. It wasn't that they were good talkers. It wasn't that they had a lot of education. They are men who had seen Jesus alive. So they're telling everybody, hey, Jesus is actually alive. And I'm telling you today, Jesus is alive. And if you believe it, you will have life in his name. Maybe you say, wait, 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 wait. I can't, I can't because I don't have an eyewitness. <laughs> George, you're getting ahead of me here, yeah. So, <laughs> That's why you're at the front of the class. George says, you have the book. And he's right. That's what it says right there. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you will have life in his name. God made a provision for doubters. He cares. I got a daughter sitting over there. Holly, my oldest daughter. And she's... Uh, wave your hand. That's my daughter, Holly, right over there. Yes. Holly's had a struggle with doubt. And I have permission to talk about this just a little bit. She's had a struggle with doubt. And, and especially when she was younger, you know, she would come to me and her little eyes, she would look at me and she would say, hey, Dad, I just have questions. You know, how hard is that? If you're the pastor's kid and you're struggling with doubt, right? So she would ask me these basic questions. You know, how do I know the Bible is true? And she, and by the way, do you remember the list that I went through and I gave you all the kinds of different kinds of doubt? There's something kind of dark and sinister behind all of it that I didn't mention. The devil wants you to doubt. 
These very real spiritual beings, the devil and demons in this world, and they're le- the world of flesh and the devil is going to lean against you, even a little girl sitting in church, her dad's preaching, and she's thinking, I doubt it. And Holly would say to me, Dad, I thought when I got old enough to get baptized, that when I got baptized, then my doubts would go away, but I still had my doubts. And then she said, Dad, I remember when I took communion after I was baptized, I thought, after I take communion, then my, maybe my doubts will go away, but she still had doubts. And so she would ask me these things, and I would give her these answers and share different things with her. One day, I remember we were in the house, and it was my day off, and we were sitting on the couch, and she just kind of looked at me with those big eyes, and she said, Dad, I just I need to ask you some questions. And so she started asking me questions about the Bible, about God, and I began to give her these, the best answers I knew how to give her so that it would help her with her doubts. And we must have talked for an hour. And when we got done talking, I said, how, how does, does that help? She says, yeah, that helps. Thanks, Dad. At that point, I lean over and I got a radio that's behind the couch. I lean over after we talked for an hour and I'd gone through all of these kind of, kind of arguments for the Christian faith, if you will. And I turned the radio on. On the radio was this radio preacher, his name is R.C. Sproul. And he says something like this, not direct quote, but something like this. Today, my radio talk is about what to do when you have doubts. And then we just kind of got quiet, and he went through almost like he and I were reading off the very same script. He's a lot sharper than I am, he's a lot smarter than I am, but Holly, is it not true? He said the same things. And I just, without saying anything, I looked over at her, and she looked at me, and she said, that's amazing. Now, let me tell you what I think happened right there. I think that God said to Holly, reach in over here and touch my side. Because he knew the doubts that she had. And he gave her a little experience that would encourage her faith. And I've been praying about this hour that for all of you that struggle with some kind of doubt, that Jesus would whisper just what you need to hear and say, I know you have doubts. I understand that. I care about that. I know exactly what your doubts are from. I know what your doubts are. I know where they came from. And I know how to fix them. And I'm here to tell you this. The way to overcome doubt, and there are many ways, there are many things we talk about, but with a powerful way that given to us Thomas's doubt, he overcomes doubt by the presence of Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ. And he says, well, blessed are you. And blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. These are people that are going to come like us who don't have the privilege of seeing. How are we going to believe? This is the idea here. When the Spirit of God supernaturally enlightens you to the truth about Christ in the Bible, you move from doubt to faith. We'll kind of unpack that just a little bit. Here's what theologians say about the Bible, and this is probably worth you thinking about. The Bible is self-authenticating. In other words, the Bible proves itself. Do you see what I'm getting at? In other words, if I give you all kinds of cool arguments and all kinds of possibilities and probabilities and all kinds of evidences, and if we go to Israel and we dig through all the ruins, we say, look, this is real and that's true and here's evidence for that, that's all just wonderful. That's a lot of fun. That's kind of like um, hobbies for Christians. We just love doing that. But here's the thing that God says He does in order to make doubters believers. Even when we're Christians and we're struggling with doubt, you read the Bible... 
and then something supernatural happens, the Holy Spirit, while you're reading the Bible, confirms in your soul that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. You see? In other words, there's a supernatural something that happens. It's not just that you get the evidence. You do get the evidence, but it's more. Now, let me give you a couple of quick uh, examples of this. And, and one of them is in 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to what it says. There are people who don't believe, right? In, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are dying, perishing, they're on their way to hell. And then it says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the glory of the gospel the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, the one who made the sun and the moon, right? It is the God who made the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see that? That's what happens. It's like a miracle that happens. So what do you do? God whispers, you get quiet. You get a Bible, you read it. You ask God, Holy Spirit, enlighten me. Help me to know what's true. I'm having trouble with doubts. I'm struggling here. I need help. God knows that. He cares about that. He arranges faith-building circumstances for people whose hearts are hungry. And He has written the Bible for us so that we can believe, even though we don't have eyewitnesses, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'm on my way here today. And this gal kind of cuts me off in a little red car. How many of you have a little red car? Raise your hand right now. Yes? No, I'm just kidding. Some gal cuts me off. Was that you? She didn't really cut me off, but she went in front of me, and I'm a man, and men don't like that. They want to be like, like NASCAR. You know, you just want to be in front all the time. Right? Are you this way? Yeah. So she goes in front of me, so I'm like, hmm. And I'm thinking about passing her back because I'm a man, that's why. And she had a little red car. And anyway, and I noticed a bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker on her car, it says... TwoWordStory.com. Anybody know what this is? Nobody knows. I love when this happens because I enlighten hundreds of people. Sarah and I are the only ones who know this. Yeah, Bob, yes. You guys are always slow to raise your hands. And, uh, actually, so you see if you're not going to get embarrassed publicly. And then, yeah, I know how that works. So it's like TwoWordStory.com. And so I'm at the traffic light, and this Yahoo's in front of me, you know, so I can't go. No, I mean, Precious little girls in front of me, and I'm at the traffic light, and so I get out my little phone, and I look up twowordstory.com, and you know what it is? It's a bunch of stories of people who went from doubt to faith when they read the Bible about who Jesus is. It's pretty cool. It's Detroit, too. It's our people. It's Detroit people right here in our region after thousands of years, Jesus Christ is still transforming people's lives. From doubt to faith, from bondage to freedom, from sorrow to joy, from ignorance to wisdom. He's still changing people's lives. TwoWordStory.com, you can, you can watch the videos right there. Or, or you can be one. 
I want to offer, I want to make you an offer, and that is, um, we got, we're all doubters. We're all, we all have a little doubt every once in a while, am I right? But you're, you're sitting among lots of people who are not characterized by doubt, but they're characterized by faith and by believing. And they'd be happy to help you understand God more, and I would. And so I hope that you won't go away, but you'll come back. What we do in this church, as you know, is we open the Bible every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, tonight, we preach, preach the whole book of the Bible tonight. Can you imagine the torture of that? Yeah. Just two, two chapters, Haggai tonight. A beautiful story in the Bible. We, we open the Word, and we teach the Word, and, and you read the Word, and then the Holy Spirit does what He does, and you understand that's how your life is going to be changed from doubt to faith when you read the Bible about who Jesus is, and the Holy Spirit does what only He can do to help you believe that and drive the dark doubts out of your life. I'd like to close our service today with a couple of things. I'd like for you to affirm your faith in Jesus Christ by singing, and then I'd like to have a benediction. Let's stand together as we sing with all of our hearts on this Resurrection Sunday.